I invite you to be seated. Also, to pray with me this morning. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the words of the Apostle Paul, and that having heard his instruction to the church in Corinth, we might, some 2,000 years later, heed his advice. And so, as we gather together, speak to us today. And may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God. Amen. Amen. Well, you hear me say this a lot if you've been around with me in the pulpit. And one of the things is I, I love the Bible, but I also understand it's difficult for people to approach the Bible sometimes. They hear words like judgment and condemnation, immediately flags go up and they wonder what in the world is going on and why am I going to, what am I going to take out of this for my life? But at the same time, I think the more you study about like the situation of the Bible, the more relatable it comes. I mean, here the Apostle Paul writes a letter to this church that he has started. And at the end of this verse that we have, he has the words, I'm going to tell you more about this later when I get there, right? Because what was happening in this church, I think, is all too often like a scene in throughout society, maybe not in a particular church, but seen throughout society. And I think that what is going on at this table teaches us about how we come to the table and who we invite to our tables together. Because I mentioned that this is the Passover at the early church. Because the Passover a few weeks ago when we began, we talked about the story of Exodus and how the Spirit of God passed over and it instituted one of the longest holidays in the world, this Passover meal amongst the Jewish people. They'd been doing it for thousands of years through exiles and all sorts of things. And then Jesus last week did a Passover meal with his disciples. And he used these words of the breaking the bread giving his body and giving the cup and saying it's his blood of the new covenant. And we know that one of the earliest traditions of the church, period, is this passing on of this sacred meal around the table. That's known as communion. It was the most important thing that Christians did in the early church. So much so, they built a reputation for themselves because they would pass the peace of Christ before they would eat communion together, and they would kiss what they called their brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, phrases that seem normal to us. And then they would eat the body and drink of the blood of Christ. And so in Roman culture, one of the things that the early Christians became known for were incestual cannibals, <laughs> because they kissed their brothers and sisters, and then they ate body and drank blood. The earliest writings about these people as Christians were kind of demonized in these lights because they're this subset of the Jewish culture that were doing some things that were, well, kind of weird, right? But yet when they gathered, we know it was so important to them over and over, this sacred meal. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, would go around and he would start a number of churches. And then what would often happen is he would start a church and then all of a sudden the church would kind of, you know, lose their way in one way or the other. And most of the writings of the New Testament come as Paul giving instructions to some of the churches that he had started about the ways in which they have gone awry. But a consistent theme throughout all of his writings is, I think, seen kind of in this heart, this drawing us into what's called the body of Christ. 
the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, they all talk about the body of Christ, this thing called the church. And it was super unique for the apostle Paul because the apostle Paul was doing something that no other Christian had done before, not even Jesus for that matter, that he was joining together the Jews and the Gentiles, that he was bringing together two different groups vastly different within the ancient Jewish culture to be friends and allies with someone who wasn't part of the Jewish faith, to be friends and allies with a Gentile, and to say to them that they didn't have to convert in order to be together. What I mean by that is that in ancient Jewish culture, they would worship at the temple for Passover, right? That was one of the things. Everyone comes to Jerusalem, and the, and the temple had different courts within it. You had the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could enter on certain days of the year, and then outside of that were the, the court for the priests, and then outside of that were the court for, sorry women, the men <laughs> that were faithful Jews, and then outside of that was just for all the Jews together, and then they had a court beyond that. That was called the court for the Gentiles, only allowed for the people that had converted, already gone through the process of catechesis, so you will, to become Jewish, but still relegated to the outside of there. And then to get in, well, that was a different matter altogether. And so for a Jew to be part of the Holy of Holies not only meant the tradition and the family that you were brought up in, but also this going about following the Torah, the law as prescribed by Moses as given to God on Mount Sinai, that that was what everyone had to follow in order to inherit the fullness of God. And the early Christians, they believed this. I mean, Jesus challenged it in some small ways. I mean, he said you could, you know, do some things on the Sabbath that you weren't supposed to. And he, he touched people that were unclean. And according to the Torah, it wasn't what you were supposed to do. But never did any of those disciples imagine that Jesus would have gone about telling a Gentile that they didn't have to become a Jew first. But the Apostle Paul was a radical early church leader, and he began a mission to the Gentiles that let the Gentiles be themselves, that he didn't require them to follow the Jewish laws in order to inherit the love of God. He says that you doesn't matter, slave or free, woman or man, Jew or Gentile, all are one in the body of Christ. So when we gather around the table, this was a primary emphasis for the Apostle Paul that everyone who gathers around has a seat at the table, that everyone who gathers is welcome at the table. And this was hard to understand for both sides because both sides had prejudices against the other. And nowhere was that more evident than in the church of Corinth. Paul had made his way over to Corinth via some trade workers and that were selling the cloth purple. And the thing about purple in ancient culture is purple was the ultimate sign of royalty. The, the Roman emperor had an entire purple cloak and the senators and their prestige would be measured by the number of purple rings that they would have around their, the cuff of their arm or on the sashes that they had. 
Because to, to make pur- purple in antiquity required hundreds of hours of manual labor of these divers going down and finding these specific clams and seashells that they would come up and then they would kind of press into and making this fabric, this purple fabric. And the more you washed it, the the more it kept its color. I mean, it was this amazing thing. But he had obviously stumbled into an elite crew of people the people that were, you know, selling Prada and Chanel and all of those stuff down in the downtown Waikiki, right? He had made his way into that trade worker, like into that situation, the people that were selling to the to elites. And then this lady, Lydia, says to Paul, most likely, come with me to Corinth. Come with me to Corinth. I'm going to introduce you to my friends, you know, the people that are buying the purple, <laughs> right? And so there Paul goes and he does two things. He meets with Lydia's friends, the people in this circle, and he also does what all Jewish people in antiquity do when they go to a new place. They go to the synagogue, and they meet their Jewish friends. But the difference between the two in Corinth was huge. You had the peasant, uneducated Jews and the elite aristocrats that were the Gentiles, and somehow, some way, he built a church in this class divide. That somehow, some way, he convinced these elite Gentiles, these elite Romans, that they were part of God's love and they believed him. And then he said the same thing to those, well, Jews that were his friends that were, didn't come from a lot and didn't have a lot. And you can see it throughout all of their lives, and you can see it throughout the entire book of Corinthians, is that Paul is trying to do this unique thing of bringing together these otherwise very divided people. Because being a Jew, a few weeks ago, we talked about eating kosher, and how I had a friend that when I was in Thailand, well, not a friend, but my cousin's friend that when I was in Thailand was Jewish, and he was telling me about the experience of trying to find kosher food in Bangkok and how difficult that was for him. Well, imagine 2,000 years ago what that would have been like in a place as foreign as Bangkok, which is what Corinth would have been. They couldn't eat any meat because all meat was first sacrificed to the Roman gods at the temples because that's just what you did. And so there they would gather, and Paul was recognizing it. They would gather, and it seems really odd to us. Just imagine a wedding feast for a minute. And you know, a lot of wedding feasts have a head table, right? And then you have the next most important, like the parents and the parents' best friends, right? And then you got the best friend of the couples. And then it kind of, as you get a little bit further away, it seems a little bit natural, you know, as you know, like, oh, well, this is a distant cousin that I haven't seen in a long time, right? Or, oh, this is a friend of a friend and they added a plus one. So they're going in the corner, right? Like, you know, have all of that naturally at a wedding. But what's unnatural for us is to think about that wedding feast And then all of a sudden, the waiters and the waitresses, they come out and, you know, the head table has filet mignon. And then as you get further and further from the table, it like all of a sudden starts becoming like a side salad with like, you know, croutons as your, you know, main substance. But that was going on because they weren't meeting in a church like this. They were meeting in a house. And most likely it was a fancy house of one of the aristocrats because they had the biggest ones. But in ancient culture, one of the things that we knew is that even if you had a big house, your dining room was small. It could only be eight or nine people. And so the, the seat at the head table was a big deal. And so 
there was the seat at the head table. There was a head table in the small dining room. And then you had, as they gathered further and further away, it went down and down on the social economic status. And the head table was eating filet mignon. And the side tables, well, they were a bunch of Jews. So they couldn't eat the meat anyway. So who cares, right? So they had the $4 bottle of wine and the salad. And Paul looks at it and says, no, this is not what the church ought to be. We know that you're radically different. We know that you come from different places. And he doesn't, you know, dismiss and he doesn't. And the, throughout the book of Corinthians, the beauty is, is that he doesn't demonize either. Like over and over again, he kind of like takes both sides. And you can hear it. He says to the, to the rich people, if you're hungry and you want to have a great meal, do it at home. Just go have your fancy meal. Eat it. But when you come together, we come together as one body. For the Apostle Paul, it didn't matter where you came from, who you were, but when we gather as the church, you are welcome at the table. And for the Apostle Paul, the table is one of equality. Period. That the, the lowly Jews come up and the elites come down, and together we dine as one. And somehow, the words of the prophet Isaiah proclaiming the good news of Jesus to come, where the valleys shall be lifted up and the mountains brought down, are realized at the table. At the table. And I use the example of the wedding feast for us because it, it seems ridiculous. Like, who would do that in reality? Where I think our challenge now in 21st century is how diverse are our tables? Because the divide between the haves and the haves-nots has not gone away. But are we dining together with those that are different from us? And are we creating the space to be one? When we began this series, I said I was a foodie, and I shared, again, my experience of going to Bangkok and finding the seventh best restaurant in all of Asia, right? And I researched it, and I was so excited, except for along, and I still enjoyed the meal. I still enjoyed the meal. But along the way, of course, it was in this tucked around corner in the back neighborhood of Bangkok, and I couldn't help but think the whole time as you drive past the poverty around you to then eat a year's worth, right? A year's worth of salary that someone would have otherwise. That our tables are so divided that you can have someone eating an entire year's worth of salary here and then you can have others that are food insecure next to us. And I've said this statistic before when we do our food drives, but did you know that in 2021, in 2021, the University of Hawaii in Minota, Manoa said that 48% of families are food insecure here in Oahu. Another statistic uh, by a Feed Hawaii says that one in every six children and one in every 10 adults are food insecure here. Our tables have become divided, 
It's not just amongst those who have and those who have not. It also becomes divided amongst those who think like us and those who don't think like us. Republican, you know, Democrat, or those who are inclusive and those who are non-inclusive. We have groups that tend to kind of flock to themselves. You have locals and you have the transplants. How are we creating diverse tables? And also, how are we engaging with those that have not is a question that is a serious question. Because I don't know about you, but my kids open up their pantry and they expect food there because it's there. And, and, I, and I have only like one family that I know that that's not the case for their kids when they open it up. And it breaks Ashley and I, my wife and I's heart when we think about their family. And the reality is that actually their family could pay for it. They just don't have it. It's not a priority for them. But then my heart breaks even more for the families that don't have enough money to even fill the pantries. I don't know, it's a, it seems a little depressing, right? It seems a little depressing. But the Apostle Paul's words then, I think, ring truer the more you think about it, right? I do not commend you, he says, when you gather those who go ahead and eat, and those who don't. And if we're going to start, if we're going to start anywhere, it's together. And, and one of the things that we do when we gather is we say that all are welcome, and that needs to be a priority here. It's not just about food insecurity and non-food insecurity. It's also about do you feel that you have the dignity at the table to belong in the first place? You know, that moment when you go from the kid's table to the adult table at Thanksgiving or at Christmas. It's a moment when you feel like you have a value to bring to the family. And so how do we begin here as a community that makes sure everyone has a seat at the table? And then how do we continue as a community to ensure that the haves and have-nots continue to find these meeting grounds, and that those who don't have, have enough to get by enough food for their table. So the Apostle Paul says to this church in Corinth, you may elites look at those peasants and say to them, man, you have backwards thinking, you're uneducated, you use crude language and weird traditions but they are welcome at the table. And then the Jews look at the leads and say, ah, they, you know, all they do is drink and eat meat sacrificed to idols and they do all these other things. But he says, no, but they're welcome at the table. And so to begin with, as we are here, how do we create diverse tables where all feel welcome? We're local transplant, military, non liberal, conservative, gay, straight, that all of us can come to the table and find a seat and find a place that we might eat and be one as the body of Christ. And that's a challenge. I have a hard time doing it with my own, you know, nuclear family, like my like extended family, let alone with strangers that bring up crazy topics or people that are different. 
And then how is we, have, we as a community, that's why food drives are really important for us. That's why sometimes we did a series, Enough, Eating Less, so others might have more. But the most important thing that we can learn from this is that the absolute thing that Paul cares about is that tables are meant to unite, not divide. And so I leave you just with that question. How is your table, how is our table uniting us and not dividing us? Because we together are the body of Christ and God wants us to go and have those tables in the world where all feel welcome, all feel loved, all have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks that you welcome us. That you ensure that each one of us, no matter our baggage, our history, our identities, our nationalities, have a seat at your heavenly table. And your servant, Apostle Paul, ensured to make sure all of the churches that he started knew that all had a seat and that all were welcome. And we recognize that we fail at that just like the early church did. And we acknowledge that you give us grace to be one together. So help us as a community know that we have a seat. Help us be a diverse community that welcomes others and help us be a community that goes beyond the walls of this church to embody the principles of your table that all are welcome in all the places we go. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.